All right, good morning. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. So we're continuing this morning in the letters to the seven churches of Asia. And uh, we're going to look today, Dean last week uh, looked at the church of Ephesus. And we are going to pick up today chapter 2 verse 8 with the church of Smyrna. Smyrna. So let me read, let me pray, then let me read, and then let me talk. And you guys as well. Father, thank you this morning for this portion of Scripture and the lesson to be learned from it. Thank you, Lord, for the Encouragement and strength that comes and the comfort that comes from your word. And we ask today, Father, in the name of Jesus, that as, as your church here in the United States in this 21st century, that we would be awake, that we would have ears to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying to the church today. We thank you, Lord, for faithful men of God and women of God who have gone before us. And have paved the way that we walk in now. And so we uh, ask this morning, Lord, that you would, by your spirit, teach us. And speak to us from this, this portion of scripture. And uh, we thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to be together and to worship freely and openly. In Jesus' name, amen. Revelation 2, verse 8, the church of Smyrna. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So last week, Dean reminded us that these letters that we're going to be studying in the next few weeks are written not just to particular churches in history, which they were. It's important to remember that. But that they were also written as uh, an encouragement and a strength and warnings to the church throughout the ages. So we don't view this simply in a historical uh, perspective that this is something that happened and it has no application to us. We've been looking at Understanding amillennialism. You guys feel like you're wrapping your minds around that. Are you getting an understanding and working knowledge of what amillennialism, how we are viewing eschatology from our perspective as we teach through the book of Revelation? You have to land somewhere when you teach prophecy, biblical prophecy, because to simply say that you know you, you don't know and that you know that everything will work out eventually and that it isn't important is not true. So you have to land somewhere, and so it isn't just like where you throw a dart and decide, you know, through study 
in prayer, you come to conclusions. And it's amazing how, you know, through much time, even apart um, as elders, not all of us being together for many, many years, Dean and Grace being gone a long time, so on and so on, we've all landed in the same place where we've come to a conclusion that we believe that amillennialism is the perspective from which to look. But what we're doing in this class, and Dean has been talking about, is that we are actually undoing teaching for many of us from many, many years of, of premillennialism, which is the common understanding of, of eschatology or of biblical prophecy in the United States and the Western world today, very much the dominant perspective so we are looking at it from the amillennial perspective. And so as we view the book of Revelation, we, we don't see it simply as something that is future. We don't see it in a chronological sense. We see it as something that, as we've been saying, um, is overlapping in, in, in a sense that it, 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 it's a number of, of visions all seeing the same things throughout the history of the church and even the world again and again and again in different, from different perspectives throughout the book of Revelation. And so as we look at these seven churches, the similarity of what is being said to each church speaks to the importance for not only each individual church, but also the church throughout the ages. And so all of the church, which includes us, must listen to what Jesus is saying to these churches because it is applicable to us as well. So these represent the totality of Christ's churches scattered across the face of the earth over all time. And their problems are symptomatic, therefore, of the problems that confront churches in all times and in all places. So as we read these, we're going we're to be able to identify with some of these things more so than others. But I'm sure the church in China, as they read them, identifies with things differently than we will. The church in Iran or Russia or other places where they're suffering intense persecution. Our situation in the United States is very unique on the face of the earth today. Maybe only comparable to Western Europe and other countries here in North America, maybe just Canada. Not even Mexico, not even Central America. So we are living in a very different environment here. But we have to read these letters and, and receive from them by the Spirit of God. We have to have ears to hear. So there's a thematic arrangement that's kind of an interesting thing with these letters. First thing we want to see is that, is that they're geographical. There's no question that, that they're addressed in a geographical sense to seven churches. And they might have been given to a courier who would have taken them and then on his said to, to been told by John, deliver these, these letters to each of these churches. And so he would have begun in Ephesus, which was on the sea on the coast, as we know. This is Asia Minor. So he would have begun in Ephesus. And then he would have gone about 35 miles, 35 miles north, and he would have gone to Pergamum. I'm sorry, to Smyrna, which is what we're studying today. Must be on the other side here. Where is it? Oh, yeah, thank you. 
He would have gone to Smyrna. And then he would have gone up to Pergamum. Again, this, the distance between these wasn't great, com comparable to how we travel today. And then he would have turned inland and he would have gone to Thyatira. And then he would have begun from there to begin to proceed south. And he would have gone down to Sardis. And then to Philadelphia and then to Laodicea. So there was a definite pattern to it in that sense, geographically. And we get these letters in that order. And it was basically, it was like a horseshoe is how it looked. It wasn't a circle, it was kind of a horseshoe. And so it began here and it ended up in Laodicea. But not only was there a pattern in a geographic sense, and this is something that I actually just learned. In fact, it was interesting over lunch the other day, uh, Dean goes, hey, did you realize that the letters, you know how Dean is, did you realize the letters to the uh, churches is a, uh, is a, a chiastic? Is chiastic? And I, I said, uh, I said, no, I didn't know. I didn't know that. I didn't know it was chiastic. I acted like I knew what it was. So then as I'm studying and I'm realizing, I'm, I'm seeing, you know what? This is an interesting thing. This is a theme that is, it's a, it's a, a method of, it's a letter, a, a literary method of communication used often. And it is used in scripture, I found out, uh, over and over and over again. So the word is this. This is a chiasm, spelled this way in English, chiasm. It comes from the Greek letter chi. That's what that, it's an X in our language, but in Greek, that's the letter, and we, thus we get this word chiasm. And the reason that th this letter is used for this word is because it is a, an approach or a structure with repetition and form that appears throughout the Bible. It's a repetition of similar ideas in reverse sequence. And in the middle, there is an emphasis put on what is in the middle. So in this case, what we have is we have the first church and the seventh church. And, and normally what they'll do is they'll remove this part of the, chi of the X. So you have these two corresponding. You have two and six corresponding. And in the middle, you have three, four, and five. And in a, in a chiasm... The emphasis is on these two relating to one another, corresponding, the one and the seven, the two and the six relating. And the reason is, is that they put emphasis on the three, four, five. So in the chiasm of these seven churches, what's the number one church emphasis? The seventh church is Laodicea. What do they hold in common? These were the two churches that received the sternest warning from the Lord. Ephesus is being warned to remove the lampstand. Laodicea, we'll see when we get there, the, the warning is, I will spew you out of my mouth. Two and six, which were Smyrna and Philadelphia, received no rebuke at all. The only two churches that had no rebuke, only praise and only encouragement. So three, four, and five 
were Pergamum, Thyatira, and Sardis. What would have been the emphasis on those three churches? When we get to this, we're going to realize Pergamum, Thyatira, and Sardis. We will see that there is a very serious warning increasingly for these three churches because of the seriousness and the progressive nature of the sin that they are committing. Listen, Pergamum, we're going to find tolerated false teaching. False teaching. Thyatira not only tolerated false teaching, but it led to sexual immorality. Now, this is an interesting thing, is that it is, is there was a progressive sense in, in, in the Lord Jesus' communication and in John's understanding that the sin of Pergamum to tolerate this false teaching led to the sin that Thyatira went beyond the false teaching into sexual immorality. And then the sin of Sardis was simply that they were spiritually dead. Not simply, but sadly, spiritually dead. So there was this sense of progression from the false teaching of Pergamum to the false teaching and sexual sin of Thyatira to the spiritual death of a church, Sardis. Now, chiasm, this, this thought of a chiasm in Scripture, let me show you another example. Did you get this? So this is just a, it's a, it's an, it's a, it's a kind of a, an interesting thought of how the, the Bible communicates to bring emphasis to correspond the beginning and the end, and then subpoints beyond that that correspond, and then to bring emphasis and clarity to, to the main point that's being made. So Jesus is, is, is speaking to these churches to warn them, serious warning, to these churches to, to give them praise and encouragement, and to these churches as a, as a warning and example, as a rebuke of what will happen through tolerating sin. Let me show you another chiasm in Scripture that is maybe even more clear. If you look with me at Matthew 6.24, turn to Matthew 6.24 in your Bibles. And what you're going to find is, as I started studying this, I realized this is a device that the Lord Jesus used all the time. In fact, it's in Scripture all throughout the Old and the New Testament. This, this chiastic means of communication to bring emphasis to a point. So, Matthew 6.24, a very familiar verse. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So the no one can serve two masters corresponds with you cannot serve God and money. The beginning and the last statement. You see that? For either he will hate the one and love the other. And then he says to the one, he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. So the emphasis was on the love. The emphasis was on the devotion. 
But he draws a contrast in the beginning and in the end that you cannot serve both. Another text that's kind of an interesting one, a chiastic uh, emphasis is Psalm 33.6. Look at that one, Psalm 33.6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made... And by the breath of his mouth, all their host. By the word of the Lord and by the breath of his mouth correspond. The heavens were made. The heavens were made. By the word of the Lord, corresponding with the breath of his mouth, the heavens were made. Being the emphasis. You'll see this this is a, a means of, Paul communicates this way throughout the New Testament in his writings. The Lord Jesus uses it again and again and again. It's a means of communicating parallel and points that correspond to one another in a beginning and an ending statement with the middle being the point that needs to be heard and understood. So the letters to the churches are communicated in this way with the emphasis on Ephesus and Laodicea as severe warnings of what will happen. And then the, the fact of the, the encouragement and the praise for Smyrna and Philadelphia and no rebuke. And then lastly, the emphasis, the, the point being made of the Lord warning for Pergamum, Thyatira, and Syra. For us, that we need to see how there is a potential for this sense that sin, if it's left unchecked, will lead to the death, spiritual death that Sardis is rebuked for. Does that make sense to you guys? Does that make sense? There were some other things that corresponded to this as well in, uh, in terms of its, the, the seven churches that I thought was interesting. The two cities that are now completely uninhabited, and received the strongest rebuke were Sardis and Laodicea. Sardis and Laodicea are today, as we exist, completely uninhabited. They don't exist anymore. And they were the two churches that received the strongest rebuke. The two cities that resisted the Turkish invasion of Asia Minor the longest and held out the longest were the two churches that were praised in the letter, and that was Smyrna and Philadelphia. So it's kind of interesting that these two churches being praised for their endurance ended up enduring for many, 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 many years, even centuries. And the two churches that were warned and rebuked the sharpest do not even exist today. And we'll talk about Smyrna now when we get into this, but we'll see that Smyrna is a thriving city in Turkey with, under, under another name. But it still exists and is thriving today. 
So there's some other parallels. Ephesus, Dean mentioned last week, they actually moved the city. It was completely razed by an earthquake. And they ended up moving it about five kilometers down the road from where it existed. So there's another city that is there today, not called Ephesus, that would have had still some of the remnant of the city of Ephesus. But these two cities don't exist at all anymore, Sardis and Laodicea. And these two resisted and endured even the Turkish invasion the longest. So let's talk about the city of Smyrna now before we look at the letter itself. The word comes from uh, our English word myrrh, myrrh, and it was identified with mourning through its association with myrrh, which is an embalming spice. And as we'll see in a minute, it's interesting the correspondence between its name and what it was enduring. It means mourning. It's the word myrrh, associated with mourning because of its being used in embalming. It was the city of the great Greek poet Homer. It's where Homer was born and where Homer lived and where he wrote probably the Iliad and the Odyssey, the city of both his birth and his death. It had the largest theater in Asia Minor. It would seat 20,000 people. It was a magnificent city on the coast, beautiful city with incredible architecture, temples everywhere dedicated to many different pagan gods and goddesses. And in its, in its uh, philosophy and its religion, it was decidedly pagan. Decidedly pagan. There was not a religion or even philosophy in the Greek culture of um, Smyrna that would be tolerated outside of what they deemed to be acceptable, which was emperor worship. And then the pagan gods and goddesses that Rome allowed them to worship. If Ephesus was the chief city of Asia Minor, which it was because of its port, Smyrna was its shining jewel. When I was studying this, I kept thinking of Santa Barbara. That's honestly what I kept thinking of. A city like that just like nestled in this beautiful setting on the coast. Um, it actually had a, a, um, a really nice harbor, but it had a hill that was known as the crown of Smyrna that was surrounded with elegant estates. So it was a very wealthy, it was the wealthiest of all of the cities we'll see ironically in all of Asia Minor. And it was very, very much tied to the Roman Empire in its loyalty. And so legally in Smyrna, this is important, the emperor had to be worshipped as a god. Now, what Rome would allow the Jews to worship, they had made a deal with Rome, and they were still allowed to have their worship of their God, who we know is our God as well. They were able to worship him um, because of what they had come to an agreement with Rome regarding their uh, willingness to go along with all of Rome's demands and so on. And so in the midst of this, we'll find was the, the, the pagan gods and goddesses, the Roman emperor worship, the Jews who were tolerated by Rome, and then you had over here completely 
marginalized this Christian church. The city of, uh, of Smyrna is today the Turkish city of Izmir, I-Z-M-I-R. And it has a population of over 4 million. And if you look at pictures of it all, you can look it up. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful city. Um, sitting right on the coast of the Aegean Sea. So this was a very wealthy city, a very um, beautiful city. It had fine arts and fine culture. It was very sophisticated. Um, it was, it was a, a very much a, a model of, of the success of the Greek culture and the Roman influence. So it was, a, it was that, it had that dynamic to it. And in the midst of the city, it was about 200,000 at this time, which is a large city in that time of the, that, that time in the, in the world. Um, it, was, it was one of the most wealthy cities uh, that they would have ever encountered in their travels and in the world that they, as they knew it. And interestingly, it was also the, the, the city of, uh, of the great church father, Polycarp. I don't know, have you heard of Polycarp? one of the apostolic fathers. He was a direct disciple of John, the apostle John. He would have sat at the feet of John. He would have known John well. And he would have learned of John. Athenaeus, have you heard of Athenaeus? Athenaeus was a disciple of Polycarp. And at the same time in, in Antioch was Ignatius. And he, was, he would have been a contemporary as well. And you can read writings of these men who all lived in that first century or second century now um, and were writing and were struggling for the faith and were desiring to keep the faith pure. Polycarp was called the Bishop of Smyrna and he was actually consecrated or set in as bishop by John himself. We have records to know that this was in fact the truth. And he would have been about 27 years old when the book of Revelation was written by John, given to John by the Lord, and then spread throughout the churches. So he would have been alive, about 27 years old, living in Smyrna at the time. And some scholars actually believe it's very possible that Polycarp was the one who read that letter to, read the book of Revelation to the church in Smyrna. Because when they were given the letters... They were given the whole revelation. They weren't just given the letter to their church. They were given the whole revelation. But in that revelation, there were letters addressed to these seven churches individually. It's very possible Polycarp was the one who read that letter, scholars believe, because of his influence and his place in the church in that city. It would have been really powerfully... Uh, and beautifully ironic if Polycarp were the one to have read the letter. Because the letters we'll see in a minute encourage them not to fear martyrdom. Because 57 years later, Polycarp was brutally martyred by Rome. Easy question. Go ahead, bud. Um, who was the contemporary in Antioch? At the same time as Athenaeus. Ignatia. Ignatia. Yeah. Okay. And then who, who discipled him? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I mean, they were all influenced by the same apostles. 
to the degree they knew them, we don't know exactly. But we do know that Polycarp was, in fact, a direct disciple of John and that Athanasia was a disciple of, of Polycarp. Yeah. In fact, it's Ignatius, when he, he was martyred as well, they took him to Rome from Antioch to kill him. And on his way to Rome, he said, can we please stop in Asia Minor so that I can see Polycarp? And they allowed him to go to see Polycarp. At this time, Polycarp was himself imprisoned in, in Smyrna. And it says that the only reason that, that uh, Ignatius wanted to see Polycarp was he kissed his chains. He went to see him and he kissed the chains that were binding um, Polycarp, holding Polycarp. These, are, these were men who, as we're going to see, had an incredible devotion and faith. And what they endured was, was amazing. Um, I want to read this account of, there's a, there's a, you can look this up yourselves. It is called The Martyrdom of Polycarp. And apparently there were two men in the church in Smyrna who recorded his martyrdom. And I want to read just a, um, it's going to take a few minutes. So if we don't get through all this today, we'll attack it next week as well. But I want to read to you the, just a condensed version of the martyrdom of Polycarp. Because this is the letter to Smyrna, as we're going to see when we get into it. And Polycarp lived out the very thing that Jesus spoke to this church. He died about 155 AD, just for getting chronology straight in your minds. The book of Revelation is believed to have been written about 98 AD. So Polycarp died some 57 years after the book of Revelation was written. This is the account. This is a condensed version of what you could read yourself called the martyrdom of Polycarp. This is the condensed version. When a young Christian named Irenaeus first encountered the elderly Polycarp teaching in the metropolis of Smyrna, he was captivated. It was not hard to understand why. According to Irenaeus, Bishop Polycarp was one of the few living disciples of the Apostle John, who was the beloved disciple of Jesus himself. Polycarp preached what he had learned directly from the eyewitness of Jesus. His connection with Christ's first apostles served as a bridge between the first generation of believers and those who follow. Can you imagine having... Polycarp being the, the lead or the main influence in this church in Smyrna, who he himself had known John well, and then listening to Polycarp speak of what he had learned from John. He was the bridge between the first generation of believers and those who followed, including influential thinkers and theologians such as Irenaeus, who would have lived to be a prominent church father in his own right. Polycarp led the church in Smyrna with wisdom and authority. Having been appointed to leadership by men who had seen and heard the Lord. He was frequently called on to settle disputes or correct false teaching. Even the other leaders of the early church valued his insight. When Polycarp visited Rome, the bishop there deferred to him regarding when to celebrate the Lord's Supper, a sign of honor and respect. Excuse me. Heeding John's warnings against false teachers, Polycarp faithfully defended the apostles' teaching against early heretics, including one named Marcion. Marcion denied the um, 
incarnation of Christ. He believed that Christ was simply a manifestation of the Father. He denied uh, a literal incarnation. And he had other heresies as well. Marcion is a very well-known heretic of the early church. And when Polycarp confronted him, when he met him, uh, Marcion asked him, do you know me? And Polycarp's answer was, I know you, you firstborn of Satan. (laughs) He was able to turn many away from such heresies and strengthen the church's witness. But Polycarp's work as a pastor and leader would not continue freely. When persecution broke out in Smyrna, some Christians were rounded up for interrogation. And they were required to renounce Christ and bow before the Roman emperor as a condition of release. When they refused, they were tortured and executed. This is under, uh, uh, I forget the name of the emperor at this time. Um, but they, were, they killed a number of, of disciples in uh, Philadelphia and in, in Smyrna and in these other cities that were, uh, the letters that were written at this time. Smyrna had a number of martyrs uh, during this time. Eyewitness accounts from this time highlight the public brutality of the persecution. Believers were lashed until their muscles were laid bare, forced to lie down on shards of shells, and thrown into arenas to be devoured by wild animals in front of the people of the city. There are striking examples of early martyrs welcoming these sufferings in the name of Christ. One named Germanicus even embraced the wild beast and pulled it toward himself to meet death as quickly as possible. But not all could withstand the brutal torture. A man named Quintus, who had come forward of his own free will rather than wait to be arrested, when confronted with the beasts of prey, renounced Jesus and took the oath of fidelity to the emperor. These were the ones that were known as apostates to the early Christians. Though some bystanders wept with pity for the persecuted Christians, These spectacles of death and drama in the arena also served to sharpen the people's taste for Christian blood. Eventually, the crowd took up the refrain, away with the atheists, go find Polycarp. Atheist was a popular term used for Christians who in denying the Roman divinities in favor of a God who could not be seen were thought of as atheists. Polycarp was not dismayed by this growing public demand for his death. And rather than flee, the old bishop at this time in his late 80s even resolved to remain in the city where they would easily find him. His companions eventually convinced him to retreat to a farm outside of the city where the threat of his life was less immediate. There he spent his time in prayer, interceding for the members of the church throughout the world. Three days before his arrest, Polycarp fell into a deep trance. On regaining consciousness, he declared that he had received a vision. He had seen his pillow bursting into a flame around his head, and Polycarp had no question of what the vision meant. Turning to his companions, he said, I am going to be burned alive. Not long after, the Roman authorities captured two slaves. One of them broke down under torture and revealed the location of the farm where Polycarp was staying. When soldiers arrived on horseback to seize him, Polycarp refused to run. Instead, he offered his captors hospitality and food. 
requesting only that he be allowed an hour for prayer. When they agreed, Polycarp prayed so earnestly that one hour became two, and several of the soldiers regretted their role in the arrest of such a venerable old man. Then they put him on a donkey and led him back into the city. It's interesting, the the correlation between Jesus's suffering and what many of these went through. Many same things happened to Polycarp that Jesus himself endured. Upon his arrival, his captors ushered him into the carriage of a man named Herod, coincidence, the captain of the local troops. Herod tried to convince Polycarp to save himself. What harm is there in saying Caesar is Lord and offering incense, he asked. But Polycarp refused the very suggestion of renouncing Christ. And when he did so, the official grew threatening and forced him out of the carriage so roughly that he was thrown to the ground and broke his leg. Without even turning, Polycarp marched on quickly as they escorted him to the stadium. When a deafening roar arose from the throngs of, or a deafening roar arose from the throngs of spectators awaiting him, as he entered, his Christian companions heard a voice from above saying, "Be strong, Polycarp, and play the man." He was brought before the proconsul who urged him to deny his faith and bow before the emperor. Swear by the spirit of Caesar. Repent and say, away with the atheists. Turning with a grim look toward the crowd, calling for his death, Polycarp gestured at them. Away with the atheists, he said dryly. Undeterred, the proconsul pressed him further to deny Christ. Polycarp declared, 86 years I have been his servant. And he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Once more, the proconsul urged Polycarp to swear by Caesar. This time he replied, Since you pretend not to know who I am and what I am, hear me declare with boldness, I am a Christian. (laughs) And if you wish to learn more about Christianity, I will be happy to make an appointment. Furious, the proconsul said, don't you know, I have wild beasts waiting. I'll throw you to them unless you repent. Polycarp said, bring them on, for we're not accustomed to repent of what is good in order to adopt that which is evil. Next, the proconsul threatened to burn him alive. To this, Polycarp replied, you threaten me with fire which burns for a little while and is soon extinguished. You do not know that the coming fire of judgment and eternal punishment You do not know the coming fire of judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. What are you waiting for? Do what you wish. So the proconsul sent his herod out into the arena to announce that Polycarp had confessed to being a Christian. At this, the assembled crowd seized with uncontrolled fury and called for Polycarp to be burned alive. Quickly, they assembled a pyre, gathering wood from workshops and the public baths, Polycarp removed his clothes and tried to take off his shoes, though his advanced age made it difficult. His guards prepared to nail him to a stake, but he told them calmly, Leave me as I am, for the one who gives me strength to endure the fire fire, will also give me strength to remain at the stake, unmoved, without being secured by nails. They bound his hands behind him. He offered a a psalm of praise and thanksgiving to God and the the igniters, the captors ignited the wood. According to observers, as the flames grew, they did not consume Polycarp, as expected. The fire formed a circle around him, but his body did not burn. 
Since the fire did not have its intended effect on his body, an executioner was ordered to stab him to death with a dagger. His blood extinguished the flames. Observers that day were shocked by the contrast between Polycarp's martyrdom and the deaths of the non-Christians they had witnessed. They beheld the same faithful discipleship in Polycarp's death that had characterized his life, a humble acceptance of God's will, praise of God in the most extreme trial, and a joyful, unwavering commitment to Christ, even faced with death. Polycarp's was among the first recorded Christian martyrdoms. His steadfast obedience to Christ was a powerful testimony, an inspiration not only to the church he pastored so faithfully in Smyrna, but to Christians throughout the centuries. And you can go online and read what is called uh, the martyrdom of Polycarp. And it is, it's not long, but it's broken into sections. And it's basically what I just read, but it's given with more detail and written in a, in a, uh, a way that is obviously an older form of writing. So the irony of this is that this letter to this church in Smyrna regarding their suffering and what they were enduring and the persecution they were enduring in about 98 AD was possibly read by Polycarp who himself some 55 years later would be martyred in exactly the way that Jesus had encouraged them to be faithful through. So let's look at the letter for a few minutes as we have a little bit of time. We'll finish it if we don't get through it all this morning, and we'll go on to um, Pergamum next week as well. Verse 8 of chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last. The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Now, when we read these letters, there's, there's no... Um, there's no insignificance in the way Jesus identifies himself to each of these churches. He begins by saying the words of the first and the last. When you hear the word, the words, the first and the last, what do you think of? What do you think about Jesus as being the first and the last? What does that speak to? His eternal realm speaks to the eternal realm of God. That He was always, he, he's the alpha and the omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the first and the last. Why would that have been encouragement to this church? Because they were enduring in the natural. They were enduring now. But Jesus was encouraging them, them to remain faithful through it all to the very end. Because he is the God of eternity. He's the first and the last. He's the one who died and came to life. And we know why that would be so, such a comfort to them as well. Because it speaks of him overcoming the very thing that they were facing, possibly. Death. That he himself died and came to life. And the Lord would say to them, I know your tribulation. But do not fear what you are about to suffer. So they were enduring at this time already great tribulation. We're going to see why here in a minute. Because they were undergoing persecution. And Jesus says, I know what you are experiencing. That's powerful. What does that speak to of the Lord Jesus? His sovereignty. 
his knowledge, his, his understanding of what we are going through in our lives. When you're going through something, he, he knows what you're enduring. He knows what you're experiencing. Sometimes, and I think the enemy wants us to feel like we're alone. You know, how many times have you asked yourself, where is God in this? God, don't you see? Lord, do you know? Do we ask those questions to ourselves? Do you know? The answer is yes. Of course he knows. He knows our tribulation. He said to them, I know your tribulation. And he said, do not fear what you are about to suffer. So he's preparing them, encouraging them, giving them comfort, and giving them strength. And this tribulation came in a number of ways to this church. First, this is ironic, this is interesting. Unlike Laodicea, who believed they were rich, but were actually poor, this church was poor, but Jesus said, no, you are actually rich. So Laodicea, believing they were rich because of their physical wealth, Jesus says, actually, you are spiritually impoverished. And to this church, Smyrna, the Lord says to them, though you are physically impoverished, you are spiritually rich. So here in the wealthiest city of Asia Minor at this time is the poorest church. In the most affluent city, in the most affluent culture, is a people who are literally, the word impoverished here, interesting word. It speaks of being destitute, not even able to meet their basic needs. They did not have the ability even to meet basic needs. One commentary says it was a crushing poverty due simply to their commitment to the Lord Jesus to live holy lives. And the reason they were destitute is because they were not allowed to buy and sell. Sound familiar? Where do you hear that? We hear it in Revelation 13. Look at Revelation 13. We're going to get there in a little while in our study. But look at it. Revelation 13, verse 17. Actually, verse 16 says it causes this, this, it says in verse, let's go back to 15, regarding this beast. It was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave to be marked at the, on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. So this is what I was thinking as I was reading this. The church in Smyrna is hearing this written as it's being read to them. And they get to Revelation 13 and they hear of this beast and the demand to be marked. Unless, unless you are, you will not buy or sell. And they're thinking that's exactly what's happening to us right now. You see, this book of Revelation was, is, was written in a way, that, in, in such a time, that it applied to well, not only what they were going to experience, but what they were experiencing. It's the history of the church throughout the ages, brothers and sisters. So the church in Smyrna was experiencing this very thing. 
They refused to take the mark of the beast. A literal mark? No. Not on the hand and not on the forehead. Just as the name of God is not written literally on our foreheads, we are marked by the Spirit of God as one of His. And the people of the world will not have a physical mark on their hand or on their forehead or a chip in their hand to identify them. It's simply their willingness to go along with the spirit of the age. It's their willingness to do what is demanded in order to compromise what would be a faith in Christ. So the church in Smyrna was being crushed by their poverty because they refused to bow their knee to the emperor. And Jesus says, I know your poverty. I know your poverty. And I know your slander. We're going to have to pick up with this next week. We don't have time to go all the way through. There's a lot more to this church I want to look at. And then we'll see how far um, we can get with the church in Pergamum as well. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for men like Polycarp and countless others that the book of Revelation actually remind us of the price they've paid, the blood of the martyrs. And even today in the world, Lord, we know there are those that are being martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ. This is a foreign concept to us. We thank you that we are not enduring this at this time. We're grateful, Lord. But Lord, we are not also, we are not foolish to think that it could not be in our future as well, should you tarry. And if not in ours, possibly our children or our grandchildren. So we ask you, Father, in Jesus' name, by the Spirit of God to speak to us, even today, and encourage us and strengthen us and comfort us, Lord, that we might be able to endure and persevere in a world that hates you. Lord, we're flowing, we're running against the flow of this world but we are following you. We're walking a narrow path because we've come through that narrow gate that is life in Christ alone. Thank you, Lord. We love you. We honor you. We bless you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.